namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Taura, he Sorabantava Munjantu Satang. So I'll now walk over to the temple from Maikuti. We notice the autumnal signs of yellowing leaves. And this is, uh, in England, it's very good to contemplate the changing the seasons. What you see, the objects of sight, Autumn, then winter, then spring, then summer, a year passes by. And it's the incessant changing of the seasons here in the, this country. It's these simple kind of reflections that keep reminding us this is the way it is. That that conditioned phenomena is like this. You know, it's in, always changing, it's never exactly the same. <clears throat> and this reflection, in this life, the style that we live in monastics, it's very, you know, important to keep reminding yourself because we can get so caught up in worldly views and opinions, even in monasteries. Our personal feelings, our preferences, our prejudices, our likes and dislikes, our opinions and views are constantly arising. And they're like the seasons, they're changing. Noticing the seasons is easier than to really remind yourself that what you're thinking now is it's changing, thoughts change, emotions change. <clears throat> what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch changes, incessant, inexorable change. This, Sense consciousness changes, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. Then what is it that is aware of change? Is change aware of change? You know, keep asking yourself, is it, is it some personal kind of ability as a personality, as a monk or a nun to be able to notice change? Or lay people can, you know, they can notice change as well as anyone else. 
What is it that notices, that reflects on change, observes it, witnesses it, is conscious awareness? And that's impersonal, that's not, that doesn't change. The Amata Dhamma. And as long as you identify, cling to Sankaras as your identity, you're going to be caught in the sangsara, the changingness of life, whether it's for the good or bad conditions, the planet's changing, the solar system's changing. So this emphasis the Buddha made on anicca, impermanence, changingness, is not a doctrinal Buddhist doctrine that we must believe, but it's an invitation to investigate, you know, to examine, to witness, to change, because that's what we're experiencing all the time, day and night, whether we're healthy or sick, young or old, male or female, the observance, the witness, the puto, is not a man or a woman, not a monk or a nun or a lay person, or even a Buddhist. Was Buddha a Buddhist? You know, we, they're brought up in Buddhist traditions, you know. Was, a, was the Buddha teaching Buddhism and that's how we generally speak these days, Buddhist videos and websites and study Buddhism and we're Buddhists. But even in the scriptures, was the Buddha teaching Buddhism or Dhamma? You know, so the Dhamma teachings as exemplified in the Four Noble Truths was teaching how to deal with change, how to learn from change, how to let go of the changing habits that we acquire through ignorance, through not observing, not witnessing anything, but just getting caught into the momentum and the madness of the world that we're experiencing. Now it takes forbearance, patience, because uh, the personalities are not, are not conditioned to be patient. Or, you know, especially at this time, modern life is very, you know, very uh, distracting with all the technology and <clears throat> wonderful inventions that human beings have created. And so we keep busy, you know, reading books, (laughs) 
watching television, surfing the iPad, telephones that you can call your relatives and friends any time of the day or night. And there's endless distractions, duties, responsibilities. In monastic life, there's so much responsibility. This sense of responsibility is very strong. As you get senior, you know, then you, you've got this this perception that you have to be really responsible, like a role model for all the junior members of the community. And it's not that that's wrong, but it's still a perception that we grasp and suffer from. So can a personality, can a person, a personality, a sakyaditi be re responsible when it's a changing, empty condition? You know, we have the idea, the, the image, the ideal of responsibility as part of our cultural conditioning and mon monastic conditioning. But just take the word, the word itself, responsibility, and reflect on it. It is a word that arises and ceases, and it has a certain effect emotionally on us when we think about that I must be responsible, or I'm, I'm not being responsible, or the way we criticize others, there's not, there's, he or she is not being responsible. It's a criticism we apply to ourselves or to others. Living in Amaravati, the, the personal conflicts that arise just from different personalities that don't see things the same way. But personality, sakyaditi, is, is a condition, it's not a person, it's not really a, a, an independent, self-motivated person. It's a condition that we've acquired, the sense of I am this body, this, I am this, all these conditions that I have my past, my present, my age, my duties, my responsibilities, this is me. And so we create and believe in and express ourselves as, per, as a one person to another. So when, just contemplate, when one person meets another person, it's two empty conditions clashing. Maybe they don't agree, don't like each other. And it's just conditions clashing because they, they don't understand who they really are. They just react.
So like and dislike are conditions, good and bad, right and wrong. All that you think is, a, is conditioned, it's empty. It has no soul, no essence, no heart. And that's why the world is crazy. It's a crazy, mad world that we're living in <clears throat> because people aren't awake to what they really are. They're just caught in the momentum of their habit patterns. They think they have free will to make everything better, change everything, get something they don't have, or get rid of things they have they don't want. How many tyrants have arisen on the world scene throughout history that wanted to be world emperors or create perfect political systems through ideals? <clears throat> they all end up dead. The body's dead without any sense of awakening to what is, re what is reality itself. So how can the world ever be, uh, fulfill an ideal of any sort whatsoever? You know, the world is, is a crazy, mad world. And we want it to be normal and healthy and fair and just and good and responsible and kind and compassionate. We want the world to fit these ideals, but we don't know who we are. We might hold all these beautiful ideas, <clears throat> and they are beautiful, but they are phenomena that arises and ceases. And so this witnessing the changingness of conditioned phenomena is an excellent reference point for daily life. We think there's something called normal behavior and abnormal behavior and people that are sane and others who are not sane or insane because people have different conditions to experience. You know, our genetic makeup from our parents, our social background, our cultural conditioning, our generational conditioning, all these are you know, create this sense of a self, a modern self, an old-fashioned self. What's cool, what's normal, what everybody agrees is normal is like this. But is it really normal? As long as we're caught in the delusions of the sankharas, maybe our sankharas are more positive which is good karma, it's karmic. But even goodness itself is a sankhara. So when we attach to the idea that I'm good, 
then we're very much aware of somebody who we believe isn't good. Because if you have good, you have to have bad along with it. So this dualism is, is a thinking process. Thoughts are all dualistic. <clears throat> when you're exploring, getting to the source, to know Dhamma, to realize ultimate reality, it's not a thought. Ultimate reality, you can't define ultimate reality. It has no quality, no, no color, no shape, no form. So when we're looking for Dhamma and trying to understand Dhamma, we're trying to understand a, a definition of Dhamma. Tell me what Dhamma is, define it. Show it to me. Like all the modern controversies around God. You can't see God. Some people say they see God. Other people don't see God. And then other people deny there's no such thing as God. They're atheists, agnostics, theists. And people who are theists have different views of God. And so can you really, if God is reality, if God is real, then it, it's undefinable. Dhamma is, 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 you can't find it because that's what you really are. That's what Bhutto is, observing the witness to the changing conditions of your physical state, your mental state, emotional state, your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and their objects. Notice the change of just seeing and the objects, like the autumn, the changing of the seasons, the eye. Is it kind of permanently stable and dependable? Ears, Knows these things change accordingly. The sense of smell, the ability to smell odors, and the odors themselves as the objects are all impermanent. So the personality that we strongly defend or criticize is, is you know, has no essence to it. It's just another changing condition. So the search for ultimate truth You've got to let go of the desire to find ultimate truth because even the desire to realize ultimate truth is words, thoughts, ideas. You're looking for something that is here and now, that is reality itself, never separate from you. But you don't notice because you're so caught up in your 
how you feel, your view of yourself, the view of others, the world, the habit patterns. We think, you know, we tend to believe we're independent individuals that have our rights and we can do what we want. Human rights, individual rights, freedom. We're, we're you know, modern life in countries like this, Western world is very much convinced that we have free will to make decisions, wise decisions, right decisions, do what we want, express ourselves accordingly. <laughs> and so the ego loves this kind of, these kind of perceptions. To, you know, it's endless egotistical obsessions that are a, for, a form of madness. The thinking mind is a critical mind. So we, you know, notice in monastic life, you know, how easy it is to gossip and criticize and complain. Because, you know, we carry our prejudices, our biases, our karma with us when we become monks and nuns. But now the encouragement is to witness to that, to see it, not to uh, try to you know, believe the complaining mind that can find endless faults with others or conditions that, you know, that are happening to you. And the world is so much of a, you know, so much to criticize. Because the world is changing and there's nothing permanent or really stable. Nothing you can depend on in worldly conditions. So to see the world is not to despise the world, because that's another condition. It's not to destroy the world, but to know the world for what it is. It's a, another sankara, changing condition, can take many forms, many qualities that, can, that change according to other conditions. The whole planetary universe that we experience through our senses is about change and impermanence. So then what is permanent? And of course nothing, is, no thing is, imper is permanent. So we can, in the English language we can say nothing is impermanent, which sounds rather negative. Nothing's impermanent, you can't depend on anybody or anything, is a kind of cynical attitude that one can develop in life, which is still a form of madness. But the Buddha was pointing to what you can depend on is awareness. that gave to the deathless 
is open. And that's sati sampachanya, awareness. So that's available to all of us. Every moment. But how many people really appreciate that and understand it? Because we're caught in the momentum of our habits. Sakya Ditti Silabhattabharamasa. Notice the, the second fetter, Silabhattabharamasa, attachment to conventions to cultural conventions, to social conventions, to religious conventions, to modern conventions, modern ideals. So it's not that the ideals are wrong or the conventions, we, ne we should destroy conventions, but to understand conventions are not a refuge. that you can depend on. The national health, the life insurance policies, the, the you know, the, all the attempts to try to make life as safe as possible, try to be fair and just and democratic and, and so these are ideals that, you know, like guiding stars for action and speech. But for liberation, from real liberation, from bondage, from a prison of suffering is through sati sampatanya, mindfulness, intuitive awareness. So the critical mind, you know, it goes outward. Living here, you, we can spend our time criticizing each other, holding grudges. Fair enough, but the important thing is to observe that. If you've got a really critical mind and carry a lot of negative perceptions of yourself or others, this is something to learn from. And you, so you use sati sampatanya, or intuitive awareness, not trying to get rid of it and not trying to, to uh, condemn yourself for being a, one who complains or seeks revenge or whatever, but to observe. The puto is a refuge a witness to the conditions, to the experience that the sense world provides us. Because the awareness is impersonal, so it's not <clears throat> that anyone is better than anyone else or superior. We, we have, those are words that <clears throat> that we, uh, we, ideally, we think we're all equal. So there's this ideal of equality, or then some people are better than others, superior, inferior. 
what are these are? These are words that when we cling to them and believe in them, then we see, see through those perceptions, through the veils of delusion that make the world a, a, a kind of miserable experience for us. So suffering is the first noble truth to be understood, to be witnessed to. So when you feel upset, angry, frustrated, doubtful, confused, all mental states can be observed because they change. They come and go according to other conditions, to conditions that change. You know, so how can we per make permanent ideals when we're caught in, the, in this swirl of changing conditions in these forms, these human bodies that we're so convinced we are and limited by? Because every physical human being is a very limited form. because that's the very nature of conditions. They have qualities, quantities, shapes, and sizes, and they can be huge or small, microscopic. We can even have words like the whole universe, the sense of a whole universe where you, you, know, you, you have to give up trying to imagine where does the universe end? Where does it begin? Does it begin with planet Earth or the sun? Is that the beginning of the universe? <clears throat> because we can't imagine, you know, the, the size of the universe that we, we can experience through our senses. Our senses are very limited earthbound. Eyes are earthbound, ears, nose, tongue, body. The senses themselves and the, and the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air, are earthbound conditions. So when we try to examine life through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, through emotions, we're caught in the sangsara vata, the endless cycles of birth and death. And this is why the, this is the first noble truth, this suffering of dukkha is not ultimate reality, it's a noble truth to start from, to begin to understand, not to blame our suffering. 
because so much of modern life is to blame others, to blame the systems that we're experiencing. Blame our parents, blame God, blame any, anyone in the seniors, juniors, the Christians, the Muslims, we can blame the communists or whatever. You know, this is the endless seeking of some, something to say our suffering is caused through external sources. But we're not trying to understand all the external sources that can make us suffer, but to understand the suffering we create through this ignorance, this total lack of understanding, witnessing the way things really are. Beware in this life of conceit that one can develop. Because we're leading a very, and this is a very nice way to live, this monastic form. But it's not meant to be an attachment it's not meant to be something we personally identify with and grasp. So when the Buddha said, told Ananda that he, when he passes, when the Buddha passes away, there's the Dhamma and Vinaya. Vinaya is all form and limitation, action and speech. It's about polite behavior and and mindfulness of actions and speech. But it's not meant to be taken personally. It's not meant to be a form that we attach to, it's a form we use to realize the liberation of Dhamma. So this is where this investigating things in terms of Dhamma, the way things are, <clears throat> all conditions are impermanent, Dhamma is not a person, not a self. So then who are we if we're not, if we don't have a self? You know, that's the ultimate question, wanting to understand ourselves, find ourselves. Who am I? If I'm not a monk, if I'm not a man? If I'm not anything I think 
or feel, see, hear, smell, taste, touch. If I'm not any of that, then what am I? And you can't find yourself through definition because you don't need to. The liberation is realizing the source of reality itself is what you really are. But it's impersonal. So the liberation that one experiences through this reflective ability is freedom from being caught in the whirlwinds of fate and change and conditioned phenomena. The sangsara, the endless cycles caught in the, these swirling cycles of change, of birth and death. So even though it, you let go of the separate self, What remains, what doesn't disappear, is conscious awareness. And it has no form, no quality, but it's here and now, and it's peaceful. And it's budgetang waitita po to be realized individually. So I, I found it a great relief not to, to be burdened with this personal self that I developed over many years. What drew me to this life was uh, an interest, a kind of faith or interest in Buddhist teachings because it did pro provide an alternative to the worldly conditions that I was brought up in. It was, it offered a, a different opportunity to not just to be caught in, in the Western modern life that I grew up in, where I was told what to believe and presented with very good ideals, moral precepts, and, uh, you know, I had very good parents and so also in the terms of the worldly conditions, there wasn't any reason for me to suffer if, if worldly conditions were all so good. But the suffering was always this, this limited sense of self-awareness, aware that being self-conscious, being uh, worrying what others think, trying to please people, trying to, to compete and be a winner and a champion and always feeling never good enough because they're always somebody better. 
like the American cultural conditioning is very competitive, even though it's about equality. It's that's the ideal, but the system is who's 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 a winner? Who wins the race? Who gets the gold medal? The trophies? Popularity? Celebrity? You know, the being a champ, a sports champion, something like this, are all desirable goals presented to, on a cultural, not intentionally to, you know, to influence you because the ideal is equality. <clears throat> but then the realities of, 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 that we're living with is that we're all different. Some people are better at athletics or music or art or mathematics or science than others. Some people are intellectually gifted and others are not. Some people have come from very good families. Other people come from very bad families or no families or terrible childhoods or orientations of life. So on that, on the level of sankaras, there's no equality. There's nothing equal about sankaras except the fact that they all arise and cease. And they're not a person. It's not, not an independent, permanent soul or self that you can find on a personal level. And yet there's so much suffering in modern life because of the way we think. The future now is rather ominous when you hear about pandemics and climate change. Those are rather ominous perceptions about the future. And this causes people a lot of worry and fear because the future is frightening. With climate change, the heating up of the planet and droughts and floods and volcanoes erupting, you know, everything seems so so uh, out of control. When we'd like to have a future, you know, where everything, where we feel safe and everything's going to progress and get better, that's the ideal, where life just, we improve life as we develop as we advance in our civilization, is progressing towards equality and democracy and, and so forth, so that there's this faith that in progress, that things are just going to get better and better. But then when you read history, you know, you realize that all civilizations that have arisen and ceased you know, they are, they have their peak moments where they're at their peak, their best, 
but they can't stay there. There's no permanent peak point because progress has its opposite of regress. So this is a reflection on the way things are, but what doesn't progress or regress is awareness. Once you begin to use wisdom with conscious awareness, with intuitive awareness, and that's the simple reality of just being a, the observer, the puto, the witness to the, the way things are as you experience them. The feeling you have right now is like this, the emotion, the physical experience that each individual is having at this moment is like this. And you, you, so it's a way of observing as you bring your attention, instead of looking outward and trying to find peace and happiness, through going out into the objects of the senses, you're going inward. This is one way of putting it, by observing the feeling, emotion, it feels like this, this feeling of confusion, of frustration, of doubt, anxiety, worry, fear, Uncertainty are like this. You know, you learn from the teaching us. They see them as teachers because only confusion and doubt can teach you about confusion and doubt. And a lot of experience as individual forms is very confusing the world, the changing conditions that we are experiencing through the senses can be incredibly confusing at times. But that's not, don't take that personally as some kind of personal defect, but see, uh, confusion is to, is, is a condition that arises according to other conditions, it's like this and you accept it. And accepting it doesn't mean you cling to it because in acceptance you're just letting go of your attachment of trying to get rid of it, trying to get an answer to the problem, to the question, trying to solve the mystery. And that just creates more confusion when you're trying to figure out what you should do next. So in terms of, you know, the human condition, most of us have to, you know, this feeling of anxiety about the future. It's uncertain. The predictions that you hear on the media are all rather ominous not very pleasant to listen to. 
media presents us with an endless supply of things to worry about or fear. That's news, that's what we call news. And so we are affected by these, these, the media, by the societies we're living in. You can't help that. That's just the way things are in terms of the conditioned realm. Ultimately, it is crazy. It goes on and on and on in endless cycles. And we know we all will end up dead anyway in the future. But even that perception can be a cynical statement. What's the point we're going to die anyway? Is a sounds like cynicism. But that's another perception. What doesn't die in the future? You know, the bodies, they get old. They get sick, they're feeble. Their senses lessen in their abilities to function. This is old age, is like this. But what is the witness to old age isn't old, is not personal. Just by reflecting on old age is like this, then it's, it's all right to, whatever's happening to, to this body physically as it gets old, older and older, is the way it should be. You know, it's not a kind of disappointment or taken personally, because the refuge is in awareness of it, not in the physical form or the aging process. So ultimate reality, you can't find, you can't imagine. But you don't need to, it's not an image, there's no image, but it's the reality of sati sampatanya here and now, the deathless, what doesn't die what isn't born and doesn't die is awareness, consciousness, here and now. So when you begin to really trust in this way of reflecting on life, you know, it becomes stronger. And you, rather than just reconditioning you to a, to a philosoph philosophical belief, it's through insight. Vipassana means insight into the way things are. It's not a belief. You don't be believe in Vipassana, or you might have belief systems in Vipassana because the word is used, you know, in all kinds of contexts these days. But the actual meaning is insight, wisdom, knowledge, 
It's not something you don't, you can't get because you, you see yourself as too sinful or coarse or unprepared because those are all views that you create, that you've adopted, that you believe in and operate from. But once you take the stand of puto, of awareness, then you can see through all the images the perceptions, the habits that you identify with. Good ones or bad ones, it doesn't make any difference. It's just you see the, the futility of trying to find yourself as a condition, as a permanent person, as a real, a kind of normal ego and a kind of normal human being, happy human being. You'll never find that because this state of change doesn't allow for kind of permanent happiness or peace on a conditioned level. But the true nature of awareness is peaceful itself. It's joyful. So I offer this as a reflection.